Well, good morning. I want to say a big welcome uh, to all of you looking to the camera and welcome everyone who's joining us online. Um, we have a really special uh, guest with us today, a friend of mine, uh, Alan Holmes. He is our head overseer here at Saltbox. Um, he has come to share with us. In fact, he is, I think you'll have heard of three of our four overseers after he speaks today. So just a dear friend. Abby and I actually went and stayed with he and his wife, Tina, who's right here behind him. Um, but that was probably in 2017, the end of 17 maybe, when we were embarking on getting ready to plant and praying towards planting Saltbox. So really, really special to have him here with us. Alan, would you come on up? Would you give him a really warm welcome? It's good to see all of you guys, and uh, so exciting to be in your church, and uh, Tina and I have really enjoyed getting to know Michael and Abby and hanging out together and hearing about your church and watching it come together and, and grow, and uh, so glad that you guys are a part of this church. You know, having a, a great pastor is a real privilege, and I think, uh, and Michael, you have an unusually good man, a humble man that loves the Lord, and and I wants to serve you and help you grow in your faith and reach your city and make a difference for the kingdom. And, and really, that's why we're all here, right? So I uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here and be a part of your church. Michael already introduced my wife. This is Tina. You wave at everybody. This is her real pretty girl right here in the front. Looks like a teenager. That's her. And uh, this is her mother, Miss Patsy Lennon, who uh, uh, prayed me into the kingdom and ministry and uh, just been such a big part behind the scenes, loving on me, praying. In fact, so much of what I'm going to talk about this morning, uh, really I learned because I got to spend the last 30 years in an environment where I was loved and experienced so much grace unconditionally despite all of my immaturity. And, and I love you. Glad that you're here and her husband does. Appreciate y'all being here uh, this morning. You know, when you look around at what's happening in our world, I don't know about you, but it's a little bit frustrating. You know, as a Christian and uh, as a part of the, the church of Jesus here in America and around the world, I just wonder why are we not making a bigger difference? Do you ever feel that frustration? Do you, ever, do you ever feel frustrated by the fact that we live in a country where 80% claim to be Christian and yet our country is so unchristian? Right? I mean, doesn't, doesn't that feel frustrating? And, and I think sometimes we find ourselves asking, what can we do about it? And, I, you know, when Jesus came on the scene, I think the Jewish people were feeling the same sense of frustration, and Jesus came to answer that question. I think a first century Jew looked around and said, well, we're God's people. How did we end up here? Why aren't we impacting culture? Where is God in all of this? And I think those are questions that, that we're asking today, we've been wrestling with. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, he has an answer. In his first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and the longest version of it is found in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5 through 7. And in this sermon, Jesus is going to address all of these big cultural issues. He's going to say, you know, this is God's heart about all these different things. But he doesn't begin there. And I think sometimes as American Christians, we look at what's happening in our culture, and we, we do have a, 
a sense about what God's heart is concerning these issues. And if we're not careful, we kind of get on our soapbox and we're harping at our culture about what they're doing wrong. But I think what we need to recognize is, although that's true, the work doesn't begin out there, it begins in here. Right? And so when Jesus comes, he doesn't come and rally everybody together to complain about what's happening out there. Jesus makes it clear in his first sermon, and this is how he'll live his life, and this is how he trained his disciples. This is how the early church really got grounded and had such a, a big impact on culture. What Jesus makes clear is the work we want to see out there begins in here. And one of the things that's true about American culture, American church culture, is we've been so focused on what we wanted God to do out there, we've neglected what he wants to do in here. And so we have to begin in the right place. When you study the Sermon on the Mount, it begins with what we call the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are basically the introduction to his sermon. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus, this is so powerful, he invites us out of a life that is a burden and into a life that is a blessing. Isn't that encouraging? And just imagine the first century Jew, Jesus shows up, they're occupied by Rome, they have no power, they have no voice, they are struggling every day to get by. They are very taxed and, and financially and all the kind of practical ways they are suffering. And Jesus steps into that and he says, why don't you come and step into a blessed life? It was a very encouraging message. But the question is, how do we experience that blessing? Because I think if most Christians in America were honest, they'd not describe their life as blessed. So where's the blessing? Well, in the Beatitudes, these nine statements, Jesus outlines a path, some steps that we can take. I want to overview them, and I want to focus on two this morning. But just like in the Ten Commandments, you know, if you study the Ten Commandments, the first four are about our relationship with God. The next six are about our relationship with God with each other. In the exact same way, Jesus begins this sermon with the Beatitudes, and the first four are about our relationship with God. And the next four are about how our relationship with God changes the way we relate to one another. So here are the first four. This is Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, poor in spirit means that we recognize without Jesus, we are spiritually bankrupt. Without Jesus, we are hopeless. We're a lost cause, but thank God for Jesus, right? Jesus came, died on the cross, and did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Michael and I had coffee this morning, and we were talking some about this idea. And, and sometimes, again, if you've lived your whole life in church culture, 
it's easy to feel pretty good about yourself spiritually, especially compared to the guy down the street, right? But it's kind of like one way to understand our bankruptcy apart from Jesus. It's kind of like we're at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. I got to visit the Grand Canyon this summer, and it is deep. And it's kind of like we're at the bottom of the Grand Canyon and upriver a dam breaks and there's a flood coming. Now you might be an unusually good athlete with a 40-inch vertical. And I'm getting a little old and can't jump as high as I used to, so maybe I can jump 10 inches. Does it matter? The rim is a mile up. And that's what it's like for us spiritually. Maybe you've been in church most of your life and never really did anything wrong it's a mile up, right? Outside of Jesus, we are hopelessly lost. So the first Beatitudes about humility, it's just recognizing, God, I need you, humility. The second Beatitude is blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, verse 4. And the idea here is that we recognize our own depravity that we recognize our sinfulness and we recognize the pain that that's caused in our lives and the lives of other people. How many of you can see that? I, I certainly can. I look back on my life and I can see my sinfulness and the pain that it caused. And the truth is, rather than denying it, it should break my heart. You know one of the ways that you can figure this out? You might say, well, how do I know how sinful I am? Just get married. <laughs> you know what marriage does? It exposes our selfishness, right? We lived all those years, and we got to make all the decisions, and it was only me. And now, all of a sudden, we got to share every decision, every, you know, there's another person now, Right? And it exposes some things in our heart and really creates a great opportunity for God to step in and to produce change in us. That's another sermon. But what Jesus is saying is that we have to come to this place where we're just broken over our spiritual condition. We're mourning. So there's humility. There's brokenness. Here's the third thing he says. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power under control. Meekness is coming to the realization that as long as I'm calling the shots, my tendency is to make a mess. So I'm tired of being in charge. God, please, I want you to be in charge. You want me to tell you a little secret about pastors? Pastors are really desperately trying to hear from God, but on our best day, we're about 70% sure. I mean, that's just reality. You know, if a, if a pastor starts telling you, oh, I heard the God, I know this is, usually that means he's exaggerating at best, right? <laughs> I want to know God, and I want to know what God wants me to do in, in these different situations of my life and ministry. But I also have in this place where now my prayer is often, this is literally what I say to God regularly. I say, God, I think this is what we're supposed to do next. But if it's not, if that's not it, I want what you want. And when I'm too stupid to know, God help me to stay in your will. That's meekness. 
It's coming to a place where I recognize that the truth is what is best for me is for God to be in charge. Humility, brokenness, the idea with that next one is surrender. God, I want you to be in charge of my life. Here's the fourth beatitude. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, righteousness simply means right standing. To be righteous is not, well, I just follow a, a moral code independently of God. Righteousness means I'm in step with Jesus. So the reason I follow this moral law is not because it's a rule that's disconnected from Jesus. It's that I want to be in step with Jesus and he would never break that rule. So I'm not going to get out of step with him in order to violate his law and hurt somebody else. It's I'm trying to stay in step. It's, it's, it's kind of like, here's the best illustration I know. I have a dog. His name is Jake. He's about a hundred pound lab. He's about this big. He hadn't seen me all week. I've been out of town for a week. And when I get home today, he will greet me at the door. And I'll walk to my bedroom to change clothes, and he will follow me every step of the way. And when I finish changing clothes and come down and sit in the living room, he will lay down on my feet. He goes where I go. Jake is righteous. I should call him that. <laughs> and really, that's what our relationship with Jesus should look like, is that we're learning to practice the presence of God. The Christian life isn't just a, again, it's not morality, although morality is the fruit of the Christian life. The Christian life is an actual relationship with God where when I trusted in Jesus, he washed away my sin and the Spirit of God came to live inside of me and the Christian life is living with an awareness of his presence and staying in step with him in every moment. Every relationship, every decision, God is here in this moment. What's he saying? What's he doing? How do I stay in step with him? That's righteousness. Now, he finishes that beatitude with this promise. I love this. He says, those who are hungry and thirst for righteousness, those who want to live that way, here's what he says. You will be filled. Now, how many Americans feel full? See, the truth is most feel empty, desperate. And so their whole life, they're desperately trying to grasp something that'll fill the longing in their soul that is created for Jesus, only he will ever satisfy. And listen, when that's not settled, we will never love people. We use everybody in our life. We use them to try to fill us. They were never intended to fill us. Jesus has to be our expectation. Jesus has to fill us. And when we're hungry and thirsty to stay in step with Jesus and he fills our soul, then we can love people rather than need them. We can serve people rather than use them. So these first four Beatitudes are about our relationship with God. Humility, brokenness, surrender. The word for that last one is dependence. 
In fact, this is so important. If you can understand this, it takes the pressure off. For so many Christians, they're trying to manage their behavior. There are things in their life that they know, I'm not supposed to do that anymore. I'm a Christian. And so they grit their teeth and they try harder to do better. And they think that's the Christian life. And what it is, is it's religion that it becomes a burden. Here's what Jesus said about that. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, all who are tired of the burden of performance and trying to manage your behavior. If you're sick and tired of that life, that religious life, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest. See, the Christian life's not about what I can do. It's about what Jesus can do in me. Jesus doing in me what I was never able to do myself, no matter how religious, no matter how much discipline, no matter how hard I tried, only God could do it. So it's coming to this place that every time you recognize in yourself something that you believe Jesus ought to change, instead of just trying harder, it's being honest with Jesus and saying, Jesus, I have tried and tried and tried. I, I'm giving up on that. If you want me to be more humble, if you want me to live in purity, if you want to love me to love my neighbor that I can't stand, if you want me to serve my boss, if you want, if you want me to do these things that do not come naturally and I stink at those, if you want me to do that stuff, you're going to have to produce that in me. It's making God responsible for your sanctification. And the truth is, that's the Christian life. See, when you begin to experience spiritual growth and transformation from the inside out, you know what happens? You find yourself in a situation where all of a sudden you do something you've never done before. It, it actually surprises you. You realize, daggone, I'm actually nice now. I don't know what happened, but God is... Something has changed. In fact, let me give you a very practical, painful example of this. So 12 years ago, I, I moved into my neighborhood. And uh, one day I was out in the driveway. And I moved, let me give it a little disclaimer to excuse my sinfulness, sinfulness and my bad temper, which is not excusable. But anyway, 12, before moving into my new neighborhood, I lived on this hill. And in my neighborhood, everybody drove about 50 miles an hour down that hill, even though the speed limit was 35. And I had little children at the time. And when my kids wanted to ride their bike, I had to get a beach, the real story, I had to get a beach chair and sit in the middle of my road, sit in the chair in order to force my neighbors to drive the speed limit so they wouldn't run over my children. And it made me mad. I was so angry. And so then we moved to a new neighborhood. I was like, praise the Lord, we're not on that hill anymore. My children can ride their bikes without getting killed. And one day I'm standing in my neighborhood and I hear, and it's this guy and he's driving crazy in my neighborhood. So he gets in front of him and I just start screaming at him and he stops and I went down there and I gave him a piece of my mind. I'm the pastor of my church at the moment and I gave him a piece of my mind and I even invited him to get out of the car. Now, that's good. That's what a preacher ought to do. <laughs> so mad. Turns out his son had just turned 16, and he was just test driving a car, and I was acting like a fool. But I was unsanctified. 
And I just said to the Lord, if you want me to be nice to people, if you want, if you want me to not be a fighter anymore, you're going to have to do something. Because, I mean, I'm, I know I shouldn't act like that. But you're going to have to do something in me that I've not been able to do yet. About a year ago, I got a new neighbor. And he's a little psycho in my mind. And, uh, <laughs> and we had people at our house all the time, and we parked on the road. And, and uh, he was saying he wasn't able to pull out of his driveway. And, and, uh, and, and anyway, one... He was sending me some texts, and, and, I, and I didn't realize he was so upset about it. And I think he sent me three texts that I can remember. He claims he sent me 40, and I ignored it. And then he started posting on Facebook about me, and I didn't know that. Neighbors started telling me. And, and then we finally got on the phone, and he started insulting me and threatening me. And it's like old Alan just invites him into the front yard, and we will settle this. Literally. And I'm just on the phone, and I'm, and I'm trying not to laugh out loud. And I just kept saying to you, dude, I'm your neighbor. I want to be a good neighbor. I agree. We'll try not to part there. I love you. I'm for you. I'm not, I, you're, you keep arguing, and I keep telling you, I agree. Finally, he got so frustrated, he said, well, I guess there's nothing else to talk about. And he hung up. But you know, I got off the phone and here, literally, I got off the phone and I said, Jesus finally changed me. <laughs> I don't have to get in a fight with my neighbor when he disagrees. See, when God begins producing change in your life, often it just surprises you because you realize I'm a new person now and I didn't do anything. God did it. And the promise of the New Testament is because of grace, we can stand and live in the presence of God. And if we will, his life and character will begin to grow in you. That's the Christian life. So now here's the question. How are you doing at this? And how do we know? Is our life truly characterized by humility, brokenness, surrender, dependence? Well, the next four Beatitudes, Jesus shifts his focus. He began with our relationship with God. Now he's going to describe how that relationship transforms the way we relate to other people. Here's the first one, and let's call it the mercy test. So the next Beatitude, number five, is blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. If there's anything that we've learned in the last two years is that evangelical white Christians have a difficult time being merciful. Right? And listen, you can, you can spout off all the reasons why you're right. This is not about whether you're right or not. It's about how even when you're right, there ought to be mercy. Was Jesus right? Was Jesus ever not right? He was always right, but he was also always merciful. Right? Where's the mercy in the church today? There ought to be mercy. You know, when I met uh, Tina, we got married and right after, after I finished college, 96, and 
we went to seminary and five months into our, se- our seminary, uh, our marriage was in real trouble. I came home one day to make a long story short. Tina said, I don't love you. I don't want to be married. I will never be in the ministry. And I'm going home. We moved back to Wilmington, dropped out of school, came back to Wilmington to try to put our marriage back together. I met a man named Dr. Bennett. I don't know if any of y'all got to meet Dr. Bennett, but he became a good friend. And and I'll never forgetting meeting the first time with Dr. Bennett. He's this famous pastor, written all these books, the chaplain and professor at the seminary. He's like this big wig, and I'm this broken kid who... The truth is, I love Jesus, and I wanted to serve the Lord, but I didn't know how to... Everything that we're talking about today was foreign to me. My whole Christian life was about performance and managing my image to look good for Jesus. And I met Dr. Bennett, and I just dumped the whole thing on him. I told him my whole, all the stuff. And the truth is, I expected him to say, you know what, I'm going to pray for you. And I hope, you know, I, I just, I, I, I'm hoping for the best. But right now, I don't don't have time to to really work with you one-on-one. That's not what he said. Invited me into his life, and literally for the next 20 years, he fathered me the way my father was not able to father me. I mean, literally, he treated me like his son. In fact, one of his favorite, Dr. Bennett had all these corny jokes, and one of his favorite things to do is we'd go to a meal and we'd sit down and the waitress would come and he'd start talking to the waitress or waiter and he'd say, this is my, he'd always introduce me as his son. He'd say, this is my son, Alan. And they'd say, oh, that's right. He'd say, can't you see the resemblance? And they would always say yes. And he would laugh. He thought that was the funniest thing, you know. But I, he gave me grace. He gave me mercy. And it had such a powerful impact on my life. And I don't know, many of y'all might know Jim Snyder. But when I became a pastor, I became a pastor, started pastoring uh, Definition Church 2000, October of 2000, so it's been 21 years. And in the first or second year, uh, Jim was a pastor in Greensboro at the same time at the Vineyard Church there. And, and we, we knew each other from Wilmington and had got to be friends. My wife and I both grew up here in Wilmington and, and uh, so when I moved to Greensboro and he was there, we connected. He was the only pastor at the time in town that I knew. And I was still struggling with some things. And, and one day, I'll never forget, I just called Jim and said, Hey, Jim, I need to come talk to you. And I sat in his office and just opened my heart and shared some, shared some things that pastors shouldn't share. And in that moment, Jim had a decision to make. He could have judged me. In fact, I'm convinced if Jim would have said to me that day, you know, you probably shouldn't be a pastor anymore, then I wouldn't be. But he showed me mercy. And listen, if pastors need mercy, everybody else, every row, the person beside you needs mercy. And when people experience mercy, it has a powerful impact on their life. Do you realize that most people that are not in church today, they're afraid of God because they don't know he's a God of mercy. And listen, I, I was with a pastor friend, uh, it's been almost a year ago now, and I forget what we were talking about, but he made this comment kind of off the cuff in our car. He said, man, I'm so grateful for the God of the New Testament, boy. And I thought to myself, are you, God has not changed. The God of the Old Testament 
was a God of grace and compassion and mercy, slow to anger. That's the God of the Old Testament. God hasn't changed. He's always been merciful and gracious. Always been. But you know, very few people believe that about God. And it's because they've never experienced it with us. See, most people, the first encounter, this is almost true for everybody, but for most people, the first encounter they ever have with Jesus is you. And when they've never experienced mercy from the church and what they have experienced is judgment, it pushes them away from God. I'll never forget being in a meeting. This was almost, I don't know, at least 20 years ago, I think now. And this famous pastor, some of you may know the name, his name was Ted Haggard, and at the time he was the most, probably the most influential evangelical in America. He was the president of the Council of Evangelical Churches. He was pastoring one of the, one of the five largest churches in America. They were producing all the great uh, worship at that time, new life worship, just incredible. He was meeting with the president every single month, one of his primary advisors. And I was in a pastor's gathering with about 50 guys, a room this size, and we were getting some training. And the news broke that day that he had fallen morally. And I'll never forget, we came back on break, and because the news had just broken that morning, everybody was kind of talking about it. And, and as we sat there, somewhere along the way, it, it's like the, the climate of the room shifted. It's like we went from talking about this situation with humility and brokenness and sadness to where it almost felt like we were celebrating he failed because it made me feel better about myself. And I just interrupted the pastors and I said, guys, we, we need to be careful not to kid ourselves. This guy is one of the best pastors and leaders in America. And if he can fall and blow it all up, so can we let him who thinks he standeth take heed lest he fall. And we just began to repent and ask God to help us from doing something stupid. See, the merciful, they don't justify the sin or the brokenness, the ugliness that we see in our world or in, or in hurting people. But what they are able to do is they're able to offer imperfect, sinful people mercy. And what that mercy does is it attracts them and leads to their transformation. You know, Jesus had a great Great ability to be merciful. You think about all the disciples. They are ordinary dudes. Some of them have big... In fact, you think about Matthew who wrote this story. He's a tax collector. Everybody, when Jesus picked him, everybody I'm sure was mad about it. But Jesus was merciful. And that mercy drew Matthew, transformed his life, and he ends up writing the book, Right? being one of the early disciples, was martyred for following Jesus. And it all began with mercy in his brokenness. So how do you do with mercy? How did you do when you heard about Robbie Zacharias? How did you do in the last couple of weeks when you heard about Urban Meyer? 
How did you do when you watched the podcast or listened to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill? How do we do when we see people in their imperfection? It's not that we justify that. In fact, when I heard about the Urban Meyer thing, if you don't know, Urban Meyer is a, a foot, professional football coach and took it, was taken advantage, has this inappropriate relationship with a young girl and somebody videoed it and it's been all over the news the last couple of weeks. And part of me is mad because here's another man in a position of power who's taken advantage of a young, vulnerable woman. This'll, she'll never get over this. I mean, it's, it's terrible, the impact it'll have on her. But on the other hand, there's mercy because I'm looking and here's a man who's 60 years old and still acts like a teenager. How tragic is that? And it should break our hearts. There should be mercy. Here's a man who has every money, fame, and is totally enslaved to his sexual appetite. He said there should be mercy. How did you feel when you watched George Foreman, George Floyd, die in the street? And again, for white Americans, it's so easy to explain away. You know, he really died of a heart attack. And he was a criminal. And if he hadn't broken the law, he'd never been in that position. And all that may be true, but we watched a man die in the street and nobody thought to help him. And there should be mercy. I have so many black men, friends, who are very afraid living in America right now. And regardless of who's right and wrong, we should feel mercy. I also have a lot of police officer friends. A bunch of police officers, men and women, white and black, attend our church. In the last couple of years, because of all the rotten apples that are now on YouTube, police officers have become public enemy number one for a lot of people. And now they go to work every day wondering, is somebody going to ambush me and murder me in the street? And it's terrifying for them. Most police officers risk their life every day. One in my neighborhood, a good friend of mine, was shot in the line of duty. Most police officers risk their life every day to keep us safe. They're overworked and underpaid. But some have felt the freedom to attack them rather than feeling mercy for them and their wives and their children, Right? Again, the issue is not who's right and wrong. The issue is there needs to be an environment, a culture of mercy. In fact, if people believed we were merciful, they would care what we think. Jesus goes on in this sermon in Matthew 7 to say, Judge not, lest you be judged. For with the same judgment that you judge others, that's going to be... In other words, when we're right, and we're on our soapbox, you know what the world does? They turn us off and they climb on their soapbox. In fact, in this country, one of the big mistakes we've made is we put our hope in a political process that cannot deliver us. And I don't care what side you're on and who you're voting on, the only hope for America is Jesus. The only hope for this world is Jesus, right? But even that, we, we can't legislate Jesus. 
But what we can do is allow him to change our hearts. You know what we're dealing with right now in America? We're dealing with 200 years of the church's apathy. We had our little group, and we're going to heaven, and everybody's, we're prospering, and we're in a, the country that's prospering, everything's fine. So we really didn't live with a sense of mission. We didn't try to bring the kingdom of God on earth, and now we're, now we're living with the consequences of that. And the truth is, though, here's the good news, and this, I, hope, I hope your church can really get energized about this. As America falls apart, and I'm just convinced it's going to be worse in the future than it has been in the past, but as America falls apart, guess what? The people begin to realize, I need God. You remember humility, brokenness, surrender, dependence? Usually that only comes on the backside of our suffering. So what an opportunity for the church. When the world's darkest, the light of the gospel shines brightest. In fact, this is so, understand the context. Jesus is going to preach these beatitudes. And then the next thing he's going to say is, if you get this right, you can be the salt and the light of the world. You can bring healing and hope to your world. That's what we're called to do. So when it's all blowing up, don't say, God, deliver me. Say, God, help me to be salt and light, to bring hope and healing to a world that's falling apart. Because listen, all this is temporary. This is not heaven. This is temporary. And sometimes we've lived as if this is heaven and it's our job to protect it. This is temporary. It does not compare to what God has in store for us. And you will never have to protect heaven. God doesn't need our help with that, right? We can trust him. Mercy. So that's the mercy test. Here's the second one. Let me touch on it real quick. I know I'm running out of time. The next thing he says, not only blessed are the mercy, then he says blessed are the pure in heart. And the reason I want to emphasize these two beatitudes is because I'm just convinced if these two things characterize your church, now, again, this isn't behavior management, so we don't want to act merciful. We don't want to pretend to be pure in heart. We've got to keep cultivating our connection with God, humility, brokenness, surrender, dependence, so that God produces mercy in our heart, so that God produces authenticity in our heart. Because I'm just convinced if your church is a place of mercy and authenticity where together we're really wrestling with this thing and walking it out and learning from each other and growing in Jesus and being transformed by the power of the gospel, when that is true, your church will impact this city. And if it's not true, doesn't matter how good your building is or great your music is or good looking your pastor is, you will not impact this city without the gospel impacting you. It begins with me. It begins with, in fact, one of the things that's been so challenging the last two years, so our church has grown very large. We looked at our church the last couple of years and said, you know what? We've not done as well as we thought. People are flaking out. People are attacking each other. People are mad about everything. And, and the truth is, that's on me. So if we want to change our church and change our city, it doesn't begin out there somewhere. There's no need to be mad at them. They're a reflection of me. It begins with me. Our city, our culture, is reflecting who we are. And if we want to change it, it always begins with me. If I want to change my family, it begins with me. 
If I want to change my church, it begins with me. If I want to change my workplace, it begins with me. If I want to change my neighborhood, it begins. It's always right. This is where it starts. This is where it starts. So the next thing he says is, blessed are the pure in heart. Watch, for they will see God. How many of you want to see God work in your church, in your life, in your city? The pure in heart will see God. Now, pure in heart, I think the idea here is authenticity. In other words, my private life and public life match. That what I say and who I am, they actually match. It's the opposite of hypocrisy. And one of the things that's so clear in the New Testament, if there's anything Jesus hates, he hates hypocrisy. And many people, if you were to ask people not in church, why aren't you in church? The number one answer you'll get is what? hypocrisy. Why aren't you in church? I know too many Christians is generally the answer. <laughs> right? So how do we get over that? I think what Jesus is saying is the pure in heart. And that doesn't mean I'm morally perfect. What it means is I'm honest about my journey and I'm walking this thing out. So therefore I'm experiencing genuine change. You know, in America the last little while, a lot of Christians have been all mad about whether they wear a mask or not. I heard one pastor say recently, I'm not sure why we're so mad about that. Because we've been wearing masks for years. Right? Listen, everyone has got to make a decision. Are you going to change or wear a mask? You cannot do both. Are you going to manage your image? Are you going to make sure that everybody sees you the right way? Or are you actually going to allow Jesus to transform you from the inside out? You cannot do both. Most Christians are into image, behavior, management. Therefore, they've never experienced the power of the gospel. Their whole Christian life is about what they can do, so they've never got to experience what God can do. That's so important. In fact, listen to this. Hypocrisy. You know why Jesus hated hypocrisy? Because hypocrisy keeps you from change. Jesus came to set us free. Amen? But we can't live in freedom as long as we're faking that we're already free. Right? But when we're honest about what, when we confess our sin to one another and pray for each other, then we find healing and transformation in a community of mercy. Right? And this is so rare in church. I mean, just think about it. Everybody in this room, this is true for everybody in this room, you have secrets. That's not bad. I got some things I, I can tell you about my neighbor. But I ain't telling you everything. <laughs> but here's the question. Are you telling someone? That's the issue. It's not that we got to tell everyone, but we got to tell someone. There needs to be some people in our life that we trust so that we can take down the mask, be honest about our struggles, so that together we can grow and change. Listen, I have to be more more uh, determined to be Christ-like than to be perceived well. So hypocrisy keeps us from change. Here's the second thing. This is so important. Hypocrisy keeps us from love. 
If you're a hypocrite, what do I mean by that? That sounds so ugly. Let me say it a little nicer. If you've got something in your life secretly that's out of order, but you pretend you have it all together, listen to me. You've never experienced the power of love. Now, let me tell you why. Because what you know is that people don't really love you because they don't know you. They love the image. They love the perception that you've created. They love what you show everybody. But in your heart, you wonder, if they knew me, would they love me? And the greatest experience I think any person can ever have, the most important thing for your spiritual, psychological, emotional, relational healing, the best experience anyone can ever have is to be fully known and loved. That people know everything and they love me still. That produces in us this Jet fuel motivation to actually change, become a great man, a great woman, and to love people back. But hypocrisy keeps me from ever having that experience. In fact, the reason we struggle with hypocrisy is we're convinced if people knew the truth about me, they would not love me. Let me give you a real practical example of where we struggle sometimes with mercy and authenticity. In the evangelical church, abortion's a big, big deal. Listen, I think the Bible's clear about this. Life begins at conception. To end an innocent life is, is murder. I think, the Bible's, I think the Bible's real clear about that. However, the church also has to have mercy for those who have chose abortion. And the church ought to be the place where people can let down their mask and admit it. Did you know that in America, 25%, there are ladies in this room who've had an abortion and they've never told anybody. And they carry the pain, the shame, the guilt, the spiritual warfare, all the stuff from a decision they made 20 years ago. And the reason they've not told anybody is because they don't think it's safe. If I told them, There'd be no mercy. They wouldn't love me anymore. And so people are enslaved to their past. Jesus came to set us free, to wash us in his blood, to cover us in his righteousness, to fill us with his spirit, to transform our life, to invite us into a blessed life. But the only way that'll happen is that there's a church community where people know I can be honest and I'll receive mercy. Amen? That's the kind of culture. I'm just telling you, all over the city, there are thousands and thousands of people who are not going to church because they don't think they can find what we're talking about in a church. You be that church. And God will use this place to change this city. You just got to represent Jesus. And that's not a work of the flesh. It's a work of the Spirit. As I stay close and I keep cultivating that relationship and God begins 
producing this in my life. The next beatitude is peacemakers. I begin to value people over the issue. The next beatitude is about persecution. I begin to live with faith. I have an eternal perspective now because I'm more concerned about his kingdom and what's eternal than all that is temporary. And Jesus says when we take this path, then we become. Wilmington needs you. Listen, this shouldn't just be your name. If your name is just salt box, but you aren't the salt in this city, change your name. But if we'll take this path, if we'll invite Jesus to do this work in our heart, you actually get to be the salt box of Wilmington. Wouldn't that be awesome to bring healing and hope to this city? Amen. Wouldn't that be great? Can we give God praise? Isn't that awesome? And listen, there's not some secret magic formula. God will do it in you, this church. If we'll take the steps, humility, brokenness, surrender, dependence, so that we can be a place of mercy, authenticity, a place of peace, and a place of faith. Amen? Amen. All right, let me pray for you. Father, God, thank you so much. God, thank you so much for being so merciful and gracious to all of us. And God, I pray that because of your grace, because of your love for us, because of your mercy, God, that we would press in to you and allow you to transform us from the inside out so that this church in Wilmington could be the salt and light, the hope and healing this city. God, glorify yourself in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.